Shalom. This is part two of lesson 46 in Exodus 19. So I really urge you that if you just hit this podcast, you're missing part one. And part one really um, needs to be listened to because this, this is a whole. This is all of Exodus 19. So again, please go to the website. You'll find the picture for part two uh, there at the website. Below that, there will be a session description for part two. There's some extra notes that I want to bring in. But in there, I'll give you a link right up front to part one. So I highly recommend that if you are coming to this podcast for the first time uh, or are listening to this one, maybe you have listened to others that have not listened to part one, I really urge you to do that. Now, just as a note before we start, one of the things that I want to say is that there is a real burden upon my heart and in my spirit. And I know that all of us are are his sheep. And we are looking to our good shepherd, our Yeshua. And we are wanting to be fed by our good shepherd, the living bread of his written word. We want to see from Genesis, the first verse, Genesis 1-1, to the last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 21. From the first to the last, the beginning and the end, we want to see Jesus. This is my whole burden, you guys, with regards to teaching the Torah, Genesis and Exodus, in its biblical, historical perspective, to teaching it like Many people do not do today, whether it be a Sunday church or a Saturday church, whether it be a Sunday traditional Christian church or a Messianic congregation, to focus in on Yeshua, but to take a look at it and to see the reality of his word as we put the verses back into the historical perspective. Today we live in a time where it seems as if the birth pangs are increasing before the coming and return of Messiah, our Jesus. It is getting it is getting more crazy each and every day. And more, more now than ever before, it's time to hear Jesus' words. Back in John 8, 31 through 32. Now is the time to abide in his word, to continue in his word. If we take it to the Greek and the Greek back to the Hebrew, again, here we go, going into the going into the historical context of his words. He spoke in Hebrew. That English word abide or continue goes into the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word is to rely on, to trust in, to live a life depending upon his word. And if we do that, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free and we will be his disciples. And indeed, we want to learn the truth so we're set free in these very difficult days to know what our real hope, our real hope is. So we will continue and we left off in chapter 19 and we were looking at 
verse 5 in 19. Reading from the New American Standard. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. God is saying that out of all nations and all peoples, Israel is God's chosen people, his elect, no one else. We read that phrase here in the New American Standard. I'm not going to go through other translations, but it talks about we are God's own possession. I believe in the Jerusalem Bible, which is the primary Hebraic scriptures in Judaism. They would say treasured possession or special treasure. King James, the same way. So own possession in the New American Standard comes from the Hebrew word segula. Strong's number is 5459, and it means a peculiar treasure, a valued possession. Now, this idea of Israel's chosenness can be uh, really troublesome to some. Dennis Prager brings this up. He discusses it in his excellent, unbelievable Torah commentary. He's got two books out now as of now. Another one will be coming shortly. This is the Rational Bible Exodus. And he talks about kind of a funny story that he experienced in his radio program called Religion on the Line. Again, dealing with this idea of Israel's chosenness. Quoting Dennis, this idea was put forth as directly as possible by a Roman Catholic priest on a radio show I moderated for many years. The show, Religion on the Line, featured a Protestant minister, a Catholic priest, and a rabbi, and there were different ones each week. On one occasion, a listener called in to berate the rabbi on the panel over the Jews' belief in being the chosen people. The caller charged that chosenness is a chauvinistic and dangerous belief and the Jews should drop it. The rabbi, obviously somewhat uncomfortable with, with the doctrine, was unable to effectively respond to the caller. <laughs> this is really cool. Finally, the Catholic priest asked if he might respond to the caller. And he said, Sir, this is the Roman Catholic priest. God chose the Jews. Live with it. In other words, it's just a fact. But does the fact that God chose Israel mean all the rest of us are somewhat lower than Israel? Absolutely not. No, there's a couple of facts we need. We already know, like in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, that all have turned away from God. All have done evil. All. That means Israel. Israel has this seemingly awesome position in God's eyes. Their treasured possession. That's, that's awesome. But, again, we remember Paul teaching in Romans 3, verse 23, that all have sinned. That's us in Israel. So how can sinners like Israel be his chosen? Again, Dennis Prager has some very interesting thoughts on this. 
and as a deeply religious Jewish believer, he gives us very interesting perspectives from the Jewish perspective on this chosenness. So again, going to his rational Bible, the book of Exodus, he says the Jews are not chosen to be God's treasure because they are inherently superior to other nations. The Hebrew Bible's repeated critical portrayal of the Israelites and of the Jews later should make that abundantly clear. You guys, this is, happens over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, God says that Israel, all Israel are stubborn, stubborn and rebellious. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, that he promised Abraham and he... He picked them not because of, of their inherently righteousness or, or goodness. He did it because he promised Abraham and he's going to keep his word. It's got nothing to do with their righteousness. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 24 and verse 32. God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel that Israel has profaned my name and I am going to make my name holy and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by making myself holy among Israel. And all the world is going to see it. Israel is not special. But God is special in them. But it's the same for us. We're all sinners. <laughs> Again, Romans 3.23 and Psalm 14 as I quoted before. But we go to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and we see some interesting statements about us and here Peter's saying that we're a chosen race we're chosen we're a royal priesthood a holy nation and here's an interesting thing in in the english from the greek a people for god's own possession so we could say what peter is referring to is right here exodus chapter 19 verse 5 we are a peculiar treasure Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, that Israel is his flock, but he has another flock. Israel has been chosen by God, and that is one flock of Jesus. The other flock is us. And he says, I want to bring both flocks together so they become one flock with one shepherd. So continuing on, with Prager's comments here, he says, Israel has chosen to spread the knowledge of God and his moral law to all humanity. That's why they're picked. We know this in Isaiah 42.6, and we know this in Isaiah 49.6. Again, Isaiah 42.6, about Israel, about his chosen. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open up blind eyes, to bring up prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And then the corresponding verse in Isaiah 49, 6, and this is about Israel. He says, it is, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation, my salvation in Hebrew, Jesus, Yeshua, so that my Yeshua may reach to the ends of 
the earth. This is the task that Israel has. Prager goes on and he says, nor do the Jews become inherently superior because they are chosen. To the extent Jews have ever lived more moral lives than their neighbors, and in many societies they did, or had a disproportionate impact on humanity, which they have, it is entirely due to the impact of the Torah on them. And to the extent any other people wish to lead good lives and positively impact the world, they too would do well to follow the Torah. Now, just as an aside, I make the point that in Jesus' day, when Jesus says that all Scripture testifies of me, in John 5, 39, he says that between 24 to 30 AD. The only Scripture they had that in those days was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And the main books of the Hebrew Scriptures is the Torah. Jesus is teaching us the Torah points to him. So again, Dennis is saying, and again, let me repeat that sentence, and to the extent any other people wish to lead good lives and positively impact the world, they too would do well to follow the Torah. Jesus seems to be saying exactly that. Prager goes on, people may question why God chose the Jews from all other people. One answer is God declares the world belongs to him and he can do whatever he wants with it. We don't know why God chose Israel. We dealt with that, you guys, in the Torah study on Genesis. What, what was it about Abraham that God saw that he chose him? Of all the people then living, to be the father of a nation assigned the special burden of acting as his emissary to humanity. But we can be fairly certain, Prager goes on, given the imperfect nature of every human being, we wouldn't understand why any particular person was chosen no matter who it is. God loved the entire world. John 3.16 He loves even those who are unsaved. Matthew 22, verse 14, all are called, but few respond. It's as if what God is saying that I've provided a way. It's an option. It's an optional way. In other words, you have to choose it. And if you accept, if you accept the plan of salvation through Jesus and the cross, God sees it. And we become his treasured possession, and then he chooses us. We've become grafted into the olive tree of Israel. We're his chosen, his elect. And so now we get the same task, because Jesus said to his disciples that we're a light to the nations. We're a light to the world. And in Acts chapter 2, right before he ascends to the Father, and he said, you will be my witnesses, which means we will testify of Yeshua. God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is relating what we are to do as his disciples. And he connects it to Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. Truly amazing. Now there's an interesting question that Dennis Prager posed that really I have struggled with. 
And it is the phrase, again, in Isaiah, or I mean Exodus 19, verse 5. Listen to it carefully in the New American Standard. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Wow. Israel has chosen God's elect, but it seems conditional. We have an if-then statement. In other words, if you do A, then I'll do B. God says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then, then, and only then, are you my special treasure, my chosen people. So what do you, what happens if you don't do this? Again, we have to take a look at this because Dennis Prager has some interesting thoughts on it. And with regards to those thoughts, I do very important concept here. Because I believe it relates to us again as well. The if in this verse is often overlooked, yet it is of immense significance. It means Israel's being God's treasured possession is conditional. Only if the Jews obey God's laws will they be a treasure to God. Now the prophet Hosea teaches later in the Bible that God will always be prepared to take back a penitent Israel. But that does not contradict God's admonition here at all. There are many people who find this notion of being being loved conditionally upsetting and therefore unacceptable. We live in an age of belief in unconditional love. God is love. In which the idea that anyone, even God's people, would have to continually earn God's esteem and affection violates many people's desire to believe in unconditional love and acceptance. Just, I, I hear this today. Many Christians... They think about John 3.16 or 1 John 4.8, that God loves everyone and that God is love. But it doesn't mean all experiencing his mercy. It doesn't mean that all are experiencing his kindness. God hears prayer. He proves it. The Bible proves it. But whose prayer? Everyone's prayer? No, his flock, his sheep, his chosen, his elect. Or those that are without God who are crying out to God. But the Bible, and the God of the Bible, is interested first and foremost in people behaving lovingly, decently, justly, mercifully. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord demands of you. Just to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That is why even the special status of God's chosen people as his treasured people is conditional upon their living God-centered moral lives. Furthermore, the good behavior God demands from us is rendered much less likely when people think there's literally nothing they could do, no matter how heinous, that will stop them from being treasured or loved. Precisely because God is a loving God, he will show his displeasure toward those who engage in evil. Precisely because he loves those who are his enemies. Because he loves those who are against him and against his son. It is precisely then that we shows his love. Because he does not accept 
mass murderers and others who dedicate their lives to cruelty. The notion that God loves people no matter how cruelly they act toward other human beings, who are, let us remember, God's other children, is neither loving nor moral. He loves them. But they're not chosen. They are rejected. And God wants them to accept him, to accept the redemption plan that he has provided through himself. And God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says it. I am the Lord and I do not change. What was true then is true now. In the world of Calvinism, you hear about once saved, always saved. You can't lose, lose your salvation. But this is God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures is all about Jesus and nothing has been done away with. And that's one of the things that we come back to again and again. John 5, 39, all scripture testifies of me. He says that 2,000 years ago, and all they had was the Old Testament. Not the views of Kelvin. Does God love the whole world? He came to give a way home. He came so that he would be the way to himself, yes. He loves all people, but his love is restricted in the sense that for the evil, the wicked, the sinner, if they don't change, God's love demands eternal punishment. However, the other aspect of love is all-inclusive for his chosen, his elect, us. And that comes back again to 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what God wants for all people. He loves all people. He's provided that way. And so his relationship with us to his chosen in love is far different than his relationship to the evil, to the mass murderers, to the terrorists, to those who say good is evil and evil is good. The relationship that they have to God is far different and he would want them to be his chosen. It's their choice. And out of love, he protects that choice. So let's continue on. In reading Exodus 19, verses 9 through 15, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people, that told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. 
So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now it's very interesting because we read in verse 10 that again they're supposed to wash their garments. We see this again in some in, in verse 14. And we know that something big is about to happen. Nothing like it has ever happened ever before. Here, a group of people is going to enter in a covenant with a deity. That's never happened in the ancient world ever. There are treaties, there are contracts, there are agreements, all considered covenants. But this covenant is not between a human being with power and a human human beings without power. This is between God. There's nothing like this ever in any pagan culture. Now God also gives us a picture that Israel was his bride and, and Israel's bridegroom. We can read this in Jeremiah 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Jeremiah 3, verse 14. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Those are just some verses. You guys, this is going to be a big day. What a concept. And all of a sudden, it's fascinating to see that God is concerned about their outward appearance. That's nuts, you guys. And again, I like to go back to the fact that Dennis Prager, as a believing, deeply believing Jew, he looks at this and he has some very interesting comments from the Jewish perspective. And let me say this beforehand. In the practice of Judaism and the practice of the Sabbath, one of the things that you read about in Jesus' day in that culture is people would save the best clothes they had for the Sabbath and the best food. The Sabbath was big. It was huge. Their Sabbath best? And that relates to this. The Jewish people understood this. God is concerned about your outward appearance. Prager talks about this as it's related to verse 10. And again, in his Torah commentary called Exodus, the Rational Bible. He says the Torah acknowledges how much the physical affects us morally, spiritually, and in just about every other way. Studies of school dress codes show when students must dress somewhat formally for school and are not allowed to wear anything they want, the schools have fewer discipline problems and the students achieve higher grades. The clothing people wear also reflects their level of respect for the situation and the people involved. Given the unique level of holiness the Israelites were about to experience, it would be, to say the least, unworthy of the magnitude of the event to wear dirty clothes. When God appears before you, you should wear the best clothes you own. In this situation, the Israelites' best clothes were their regular clothes, but at least the clothing had to be clean. And for me, with my experience in churches today, women in short shorts, short dresses, halter tops, tight jeans, men in jeans, t-shirts. Now, some have said to me, oh, Reverend Ferret, it's not what's on the outside that counts, it's what's on the inside. Oh, really? The Bible contradicts such views. 
Coming back to Prager's comments, if people should wear special clothing to school, how much more should they do do so in a house of worship? When you enter a church or synagogue, for example, you should show deference in every way. So you go into church, dress up. In today's culture, wear clean jeans, men. A nice shirt. Shave. Women should be dressed modestly. Oh, they should be dressed pretty, definitely, but they should not be eye candy. Guys, going to church is not a music concert. You are coming to worship the Lord, El Elyon, God Most High. And God wants you to show it. Final comment by Prager. To those who argue God doesn't care what you wear, this verse would seem to suggest otherwise. So does common sense. Taking one's time to dress more formally before appearing to at any event is a statement of the esteem in which you hold that event. It also talks about no sexual relations. Now, sex is good. God made it. It's a blessing in godly marriage. But Yahweh, the Lord, is saying, put it aside. Something huge is about to happen. It's abstain from everything. Focus, 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 Israel. Look at all God did to bring you here at this mountain at this moment. But this is huge. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event, once in all of history. So they're ready, washing their clothes, getting ready, focusing on a major event that's about to happen. In the New American Standard, we start picking up at verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were, were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. By the way, it doesn't say trumpet sound. It says shofar, a loud blast shofar. This is related. I want to just bring a comment on. Later on, at Sinai, God commands that there's a feast that they're supposed to do in the fall. You know it as Rosh Hashanah, but it does, <laughs> Rosh Hashanah doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. It's Yom Teruah, the day of the blast. And if you're a Hebrew coming out of Egypt and you're at Sinai and you'll say, when do we remember the ram's horn, the blast, Sinai? So right there in verse 16, we're talking about the feast that God orders and commands his people that we know as Rosh Hashanah. But in Hebrew, it's the day of the blast, the day of the shofar blast. And when is the first shofar blast for them? Here, on this amazing event, this once-in-a-lifetime event. Verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet... That's New American Standard. Actually, the Hebrew is the shofar. When the sound of the shofar grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And by the way, the word thunder there, the Hebrew word is kolot, which means voices. Moses spoke and God answered him with voices? Interesting. It can be interpreted thunder or voices. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to the mountain, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds upon the mount, bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Covenant day has come. I mentioned earlier that it's possible, based upon the Hebrew, this is in lesson one, that Israel arrived at the mountain of God on the third day of Sivan in the third month. This is in lesson one. And that's why it is so important that you read this. It is possible, based upon the Hebrew in Exodus 19, verse 1. It can be translated, or it can mean, that they arrived on the third day of the third month. If that's what the Hebrew means, today is the 50th day since they left Egypt, the night of their first Passover meal and the death of the firstborn. So the sun came up the next day, and a new nation was born free of slavery, about to enter into a covenant with God. Now, I also mentioned back in Lesson 1 that we talk about the events of Pentecost and we read about it in Acts chapter 2. That was 50 days from a biblical feast called First Fruits. You can read about that in Leviticus 23, and I've got a whole book on that. If you want to email me, I'd be glad to send the book to you about the biblical feast of First Fruits. But Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, which was 50 days before Pentecost. Now, this is getting interesting. It's almost as if God is setting this up. In 1446 BC, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus is just a good man who died and had a lot of good sayings. And he did miracles and that type of stuff. But his resurrection it is so critical because it solidifies everything that Jesus did. It verifies the truth. It's like Paul said. If there's no resurrection, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It's as if God is making a connection that most of us missed, even in the rabbis. The rabbis didn't get it until 900 AD. It's God, God is like saying it's 50 days from Passover to the covenant at Sinai, and it's 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus to Pentecost. That Pentecost, when the Spirit came down upon the disciples of the Lord. Now, there's some awesome connections between these events. I taught this in a podcast, a podcast series entitled Shavuot, Pentecost, Archaeology, Numbers 1 through 4. I've linked you to the series. And I've actually given you the chapter in the book that's also related to this, so that you can go into it deeper. And I believe the bibliography is also included. In that series, I shared the following amazing connections between these events. First of all, both events occurred on mountains known as the Mountain of God. I talked about this again in Lesson 1 
of this two-part series. Exodus 24, 13, Moses arose with Joshua and a servant, then they went up to the mountain of God, which is Sinai. Isaiah 2, verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and it's in Jerusalem. Both events happened on day 50. And we'll have to say both events perhaps happened on day 50. Now, the Pentecost event, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the 120 disciples of Jesus and 3,000 are brought to the faith that day, that was definitely 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And we would say that the Hebrews arrived at Sinai perhaps on the third day of the third month. Because that's what that phrase means. The very day could mean that they came in on the third day of the third month, taking on the number that's mentioned about the third month. Both events involved similar sounds and symbols, such as wind, fire, and voices. Again, note that the Hebrew for thunder is kolot, means voices. There's a Jewish tradition said that the Israelites heard God speak in 70 languages and that God spoke in tongues. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's us. Both events involve the presence of God. Exodus 19, verse 18, Exodus 19, verse 20, Acts 2, verse 4. About 3,000 people died because of their sin when Moses received the Torah. That's in Exodus 32, 28. It says 3,000. But in Acts 2, verse 41, about 3,000 believed and were born again into a new life. At Mount Sinai, God wrote his revelation on stone tablets. But on the fulfillment of Shavuot, Pentecost, God wrote his law on people's hearts as he promised he would. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Now, what's interesting, when we compare the events, 50 days from their first Passover meal until they arrive at Sinai and enter the New Covenant, when the Ten Commandments are given in chapter 20, which we're getting there, and then the 50 days from Jesus' resurrection until the Shavuot, the Pentecost, what people say is the birthday of the church. When we compare them, when we take a look at the Hebrew scriptures and what happened at Sinai, we would say they were given the Torah, and Torah means teaching. At Shavuot in Jesus' day, the Spirit is given. And who is the Spirit? He's the teacher. So the teaching is given at Sinai. The teacher is given at the mountain of God in Jerusalem. John 14, 26. Many Jews from all over the world heard their own language. Young men and women who only knew Aramaic, Aramaic Greek, and Hebrew. The whole world heard the gospel. And again, when we go back to Kolo, to voices, it's almost as if God was speaking in languages. The rabbis say he spoke to the whole world. Both events were times when God's people entered a new covenant with the Lord. Israel became a new nation, a nation of priests, and a nation that would be the light to the world. We've read it. We've been studying this. And it's for us. We have entered a new covenant with the Lord as we take the cup of Messiah at his last Seder meal. We've become a new people, a new nation, a royal priesthood. We are to be a light to the world. And we will be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. What does witnesses do? They testify. They tell. They tell of the salvation of God. They tell of Yeshua. But this time, the 
covenant is the covenant to restore all people to himself as our sins are totally cleansed and forgiven. This is the final new covenant for Jew and Gentile to become one flock with one shepherd. The good shepherd, our Messiah Jesus. This is in John 10, verses 14 through 16. On Shavuot, if you read it very carefully, in Leviticus 23.17, there is a, a series of special uh, sacrifices and special rituals, but the most amazing thing is, this is the only feast of God in Leviticus 23 where leavened bread is used. Let us remember, on the first Passover, unleavened bread is used. So on the first Passover meal, 50 days before the giving of the covenant at the Ten Commandments at Sinai, they were eating unleavened bread. We recall in previous lessons that Egypt invented leavened bread. Isis, the great goddess of Egypt, is said to give the bread of life to all Egypt. But at that Passover meal, it's like God is saying, eat a new bread. Separated from the ungodly pagan culture of Egypt. Take the yeast out. Take the yeast out of Egypt. Take the yeast out of your assimilation into the Egyptian culture and believe in the one God and the only God and the true God. For the Hebrews there, they get it. Eat the bread of God. He gives the bread of life. Turn on the Egyptian culture. Unleavened bread is like the word of God in your mouth. It's like the Torah of God in your mouth. This is in Exodus 13, verse 9. God is telling Moses, teach the people on Passover. The unleavened bread is like the word of God, the written word of God in your mouth. The written word. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by the very word of God, the bread of life. But in Jesus' day, on the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, we know it as Pentecost, there are two leavened loaves, not unleavened. Now the leaven is a bacteria culture. And when you have leaven, that bacteria culture permeates the entire loaf and makes it rise. It's like there are two new leavened loaves, two new cultures. Yes, Jew and Gentile. In Yeshua, a chosen people, a new nation, a nation of priests, a treasured possession, something new has happened. We're new people. This is the way I like to look at the idea of when I compare and compare these two. A new bread, a new people, a new culture, a new existence. So Passover, that first Passover, a new nation is born. They have a new existence, a new culture. And on Shavuot, 120 disciples, the Spirit comes upon them and they start speaking in other languages and they tell of the salvation that God has provided. And 3,000 accept it and all of a sudden, a new nation starts, a new people, a new chosenness. It's like Jesus said, John 10, starting verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, implying that Jesus is the shepherd of Israel. 
I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The truth of God's word. Genesis, the first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, through Revelation 22, verse 21. It's all about Jesus. The first Passover 50 days to the first covenant Jesus' resurrection in 50 days to the final new covenant for the entire world. So till the next lesson I say Lech la shalom Yeshua Adonenu Eloheinu Lechem ha-chaim Go and share the shalom of Jesus our Lord our God and the bread of life. Mm-hmm.